Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Uh, welcome, everyone. It's my uh, great pleasure today to introduce a um, speaker, Associate Professor Jane Golling. Uh, Jane is an economist and uh, a newly minted uh, director of the Australian Centre on China in, in the World, which is hosted by the ANU. Uh, Jane got her PhD from Oxford and had taught there before returning to ANU in 2003. And she's been with the, uh, the China Center since 2011. I should say that Jane is a veteran in China cities. Uh, over the years, um, her research and publication have covered a wide range of issues in relation to China's economic transition and development. This includes industrial and regional policies, demographic change and economic growth, rural-urban divide and inequalities, and uh, of course the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, she has also a actively engaged in public policy and media debate in relation to the Australia-China relationship. She's also the co-editor of the China Story Yearbook series, which is the latest uh, version we have here on power, um, which I found always uh, comprehensive and informative. So her topic today is feminism and gender inequality in Xi Jinping's China, a tough road ahead. Um, welcome to Griffiths, and I'll give it to you, Jane. Thanks very much, Steve, and thank you all for coming. Uh, really lovely to see some familiar faces in the room, and especially Sue Travaskas, who was with CIW from the beginning uh, back in 2011 as one of our senior management group, um, and also very kindly reviewed this book. So it is a little bit of shameless self-promotion to kick things off, and it's sort of to lure you into what's going to be uh, a pretty depressing talk. Uh, and it's depressing in the words that I'll use to sort of set the scene, but um, then might depress some of you even more by forcing you to look at the numbers that led me to being depressed. So I am an economist. Um, what I love about the yearbook is that it gives me a chance to take you know, really technical um, stuff and condense it down into something quite, I hope, accessible to to anyone who wants to read about it, and I try to do that in my speaking as well. Uh, I only lost one person in a room of about 80 at Melbourne a couple of weeks ago when I launched in and put up a, a page with uh, some equations on it. Uh, are there any, are there economists in the room? Great, so I'll be looking at you for nodding and then I'm going to be trying to hold on to a lot of the rest of you as well, uh, and, I'll, and I'll point out the bits where you can close your eyes and wish you weren't here. Uh, if you want to, but I, I wanted to kick off just by talking a little bit about the yearbook and, and sort of give you a bit of a flavour of where I come from. So, along with Sue, in fact, we've contributed um, to each one of these yearbooks. We're, we're now at the seventh in the series, uh, and basically we go out, we pick a topic that we think resonates with a whole bunch of different things that are happening in China for that particular year. Uh, and so, for example, last year's book, Prosperity, uh, I wrote about the Belt and Road uh, Initiative and I've looked at the geo-economic kind of implications of that because, of course, Xi Jinping was talking up the prosperity uh, that the BRI would deliver and more, you know, as the 40th year of the reforms celebrating the moderately prosperous society and a whole bunch of other things, so it was a theme that seemed pretty obvious for that year. Uh, I was a bit conniving in uh, the yearbook before that, Control, because one of my main areas of research, and in fact what relates to my gender work, uh, is on 
thinking about what happens when you change fertility rates, for example, how that feeds into China's demographic projections and then into its economic impacts in a global model that projects out to 2050. So, of course, that year they announced the abolishment of the uh, one-child policy on the 1st of January 2016. I'm like, we'll call it control and then I can write about the ups and downs of, of one and two and of population control. Uh, in pollution, uh, that was the year Under the Dome came out and I'd done some work on inequality looking at household carbon dioxide emissions and whether the rich or the poor were emitting more and what that would mean for income redistribution, which has really been my one link through all of my research, starting with thinking about regional inequality and development strategies through the Mao and, and Dung eras. I think one I'm kind of quite pleased with at this point, even though it's, you know, what's causing us lots of grief in Canberra and I think across the Western world as, as well, uh, in Shared Destiny, it was the year that Xi Jinping had come to power. He'd, he'd referred to socialism with Chinese characteristics 75 times in his opening address and I wrote a chapter in that book uh, called Great Expectations, kind of suggesting to people that they didn't have great hopes that China was going to reform and become... When I say people, I'll, economists are the most culpable here for assuming for the last 20 years that China was going to become more like us, a neoliberal textbook-style economy. Um, and, you know, just on his words alone then, but fast-forward five years, and it's pretty clear that we're dealing with a China that um, some of us thought might materialise, but uh, I think it's taken, you know, a pretty big uh, turn uh, even beyond, say, what I'd described back in, back in that yearbook. But so if, uh, for 2018, <coughs> again, I actually did already have my chapter title in mind, Girl Power. I just think it's a pretty catchy title and it, this is about trying to sell, you know, single, interdisciplinary your own disciplines, ideas, and putting it in a context where everyone can understand it. And I do, it's free down to download online. I don't know how many of you have looked at it before, and I don't know how much of a nerd you are, but I kind of call it um, bedtime reading or beach reading. It's got pictures, looks beautiful. Uh, so that's my plug on, on the book. Um, and, yeah, and then I'll, I'll lead into thinking about... Um, my own topic, feminism and gender inequality. So I decided that that's what I wanted to write about. Having come at, at a, as an economist looking at some numbers that I am going to, as I said, inflict on you later, and they were pretty striking, um, as you'll see, just with gender coming out, I was looking broadly at the determinants of income inequality and annual incomes in China, and gender was the the biggest determinant of a, of a small set that I'll show you, but bigger than, you know, whether you were born in urban or rural China, bigger than uh, whether your father, you know, where he went to school or what sort of occupation you had, bigger determinant than which region you came from, and we know there are lots of inequalities, and so that set me on this path to wanting to understand more about gender, gender inequality. Uh, but when I decided to write the chapter, I actually approached two different Chinese... Um, academics at, at the ANU to see if they want, might co-author with me and I drafted the first the chapter uh, in, in one case, she's a former PhD student of mine and I s said to her, look it's pretty depressing the tale I'm going to tell uh, and do, do you, do you want to be in on it and she said to me 
you know, looking quite sort of serious about it, she said, I just can't put my name on this. I've still got family in China. Uh, and the other one, another Chinese um, associate professor, was putting together an ARC grant, which she got. She's also a single mum. Just said, I just don't have time to engage in this kind of stuff. I've got to focus on, on my research. You know, and it really struck me that one of those was a very Chinese, very China-specific, uh, whereas the other one was quite universal. And I spoke about this on International Women's Day, uh, and I sometimes do clench my fist. I am an, a feminist <laughs> as well as an economist, and you know, I really see this as feeding into what I'd call a global feminist call, call to arms. But what we do with the yearbook is basically, you know, settle on a theme and then start catching up with all of the news. And so I set out to see what was going on in 2018, looking for a hook into the book. And basically there was just no good news last year. Uh, and I think it's probably a deteriorating uh, scene, that, scene that we've got. Uh, so I knew that in September, Leda Hong Fincher uh, was going to publish uh, her book, her second book on gender inequality. I don't know how many of you know it, Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. Has anyone read it? Totally depressing. Uh, very detailed depiction of uh, really focusing on, on the feminist five, uh, among others, but looking at how in detail at, at the the way that they've suffered uh, for standing up and campaigning for things like handing out stickers in Beijing subways to protest um, sexual harassment on the subways. That led a bunch of them to ending up in detainment for 37 days back in 2015, but starting on International Women's Day. Uh, she talks about all sorts of yeah, just sort of dire stories that, that individuals have suffered, and she grow, blows it up into a larger, I think, equally depressing picture, although she has some optimism, and she's calling it a feminist awakening, but it's focused on a very, very small number of urban elite uh, Chinese women. Uh, what she does do is, is depict a communist party, I'll quote from her, that aggressively perpetuates gender norms and reduces women to their roles as dutiful wives, mothers and baby breeders in the home in order to minimise social unrest and give birth to future generations of skilled workers. And she concludes that, that the, the Communist Party is basic, has decided that the systematic, systematic subjugation of women is essential for maintaining their survival. Uh, and it's a pretty harsh assessment that comes out in the book, but it, you know, I, I can't find any evidence that it's also inaccurate. Um, so, you know, starting at the beginning of the year, we heard about the, the Chinese, the Me Too movement being crushed. Uh, feminist Voices, the most prominent Weibo account was shut down permanently on International Women's Day last year after running into trouble in years gone by. Uh, I don't know how many of you read about the new era women's schools that hit the Western press uh, across the country, supported or in conjunction with the All-China Women's Federation, which was of course established to promote and protect women's rights in 1949. Um, but they basically, you know, telling, teaching women uh, to put more focus on their domestic duties and one of the headlines that I just kind of love and hate was, you know, to, to, to teaching them also to wear the right amount of makeup and to sit up straight with their bellies in and their legs together. Um, but also there were stories throughout the year continuing into this year about women, um, about the government talking about contemplating taxless, uh, childless women uh, and coming up with all sorts of interesting measures to encourage them to have more babies, uh, including advertising uh, on university campuses with pregnant 
third-year students wearing their academic gowns that there was no better time to have a baby than the <laughs> final year of university. Um, another classic for me that, you know, I, I mean, a number of these feminists here have fled, now fled the country or are living under house arrest. Um, and I, you know, I'm always, I, I've acknowledged that I'm not a Chinese woman. I want to be very sort of aware of the fact that I'm sitting here as a white, privileged Australian woman. You know, I'm not um, judging choices, but I'm trying to understand it as an outsider looking in. Um, they set up a most beautiful family campaign, just as an, another example of where I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is not the place for me. And this woman was re rewarded with a, a model family prize because she'd managed to keep six of her in-laws happy. You might wonder how you could have six in-laws, and if you don't like the numbers later, you can try and figure it out, but it involves adoption. <laughs> So I've, you know, if you don't like what I talk about in the next 40 minutes, I can talk about population control and the impacts of a two-child policy, and <coughs> there's not very much uptake at the moment. As an economist, I don't think there should be. I mean, even as a, as a mother, I don't think there should be. I have one child. I don't understand why anyone wants to look after three of them. It's too much for me. But, you know, I also get to make that choice myself. Uh, so there are certainly positive things about the two-child policy trying to lure women in to have more babies instead of making them more productive in the workforce. And again, putting the economist hat on why this stuff matters. Um, we're talking about 573 million Chinese women. Uh, Labour force participation rates are falling. All sorts of things are not looking good for them. They're opting out of the workforce for a bunch of different reasons. And for GDP growth, it's not the only thing I care about at all. Uh, for per capita growth, for productivity growth, it's just such a waste. Um, but I can understand why they'd be opting out. I don't know, again, if any of you saw the Human Rights Watch report that came out again in last year, um, detailing just the appalling state of gender discrimination uh, in the jobs market. There was one government department, I think it was the Ministry of Social Security, where 80% of jobs specified for men only, or men preferred. Uh, and women's it, it, many, many jobs in both the state and private sectors are specifying uh, a woman's physical attributes as, you know, as part of the job requirements that obviously had absolutely nothing to do with the job. So what I'll talk about in more detail is the rising gender pay gap that's resulted from that uh, and sort of the economic story behind it, but there's also a po political story as well. I mean, I do like to just note here that it doesn't look all that different from um, a Liberal Party room or of the government, <laughs> nor from some of the seats, the tables that I sit at in, in Canberra's bureaucracy. You know, despite efforts, uh, some efforts from, in, from some parties to raise the numbers, you know, there's a question of choice here uh, versus, versus equality, and that gets into really complex gender issues, and I will declare that I'm not a gender studies person. You know, I've come at it again, through, through that kind of numbers idea. Um, there, was a there are a couple of good stories that come out of the book, but n not too many. Um, I mean, what I'm going to talk about and lead to a conclusion is looking at hours that women work and, and how much housework they do and you know, com coming from a bottom-up picture. But there is a bit of activism happening in China. Some people in the room might know more about these uh, these that I do, you know, not just that feminist five, but a growing awareness in, again, I think some quite small circles uh, that 
this is not the path that they were meant to be down. You know, this is coming from the era of, or a communist era, beginning with women holding up half the sky. You know, which half of the sky do we really think women should be holding up? Uh, but there's a great YouTube clip. It was released in China uh, and very quickly censored uh, within, a, within a matter of days, created by this woman called Chu Youqin, uh, a music student at the Conservatory of Music on, in, in Beijing. And she was basically telling a story uh, uh, based on cell block tango from the musical Chicago. Some of you will know that it doesn't go well for the men in that story, depicting fictitious but essentially true stories of the different ways in which um, men had treated their their individual, their women, very, very badly, and it sure doesn't go well for the men. I mean, the women are singing from pri from prison, and I'm not necessarily suggesting that it's a good sign that you know, or suggesting that you should go out and knock off the man who's treating you badly at all. But the point about this picture, again, just easing you in, is that 55,000 people had watched this on YouTube within the first week that it went up. Uh, and so that means there are people thinking about it and you know, there's a big story going on globally. I mean, not just in China. We've got these macho, powerful men. We're watching Xi and Trump go head to head. Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily on gender, but you know, there is a big global story here. They're listening. Uh, and just last, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I heard that the Ministry of Human Resources had announced uh, a ban on discrimination in the job sector in China, like introduce new laws with quite substantial fines, um, whether they actually, you know, implement them and, and live up to that, I don't know, but, you know, change can happen, uh, and I think that I'm not entirely optimistic at this stage that it's headed in the right direction, but it's not all utterly abysmal either, and, and that'll at least give you a laugh if you're um, feeling otherwise depressed. Uh, and this is when the depression might really start to kick in for you, because I'm trying to lure you in now to talk about the way that I came to this topic uh, and how I think about gender inequality as an economist. Um, I'm not going to sort of read through all of those slides, and you can. I've got a number of papers that sort of talk about this in more detail, but economists have spent a lot of time looking at all sorts of sources of inequality in China that have persisted and in many cases increased throughout the reform period, you know, the re regional divide, the urban-rural divide. Uh, I'm very interested in the intergenerational transmission, uh, the persistence in, you know, wealthy and well-educated uh, parents having well-educated children who go on to earn more, and so that kind of transmission mechanism, and I've done quite a lot of work on that as well. Uh, I kind of got led into this gender gap by thinking about gender imbalances, another really good signal of, of where you might, I think it's fair to say, have a pretty serious gender problem when you know, our projections, along with other demographers, show that by 2030, there'll be 30 to 40 million Chinese men of, un, of marrying age who are surplus, uh, as an economist would call it, who can't, who can't find a wife. Uh, but there are a whole bunch of other different literatures uh, that look at where those gender gaps come from. You know, so in urban areas, for example, there's been a real narrowing in terms of education, uh, educational achievements. In fact, urban Chinese women outperform uh, rural women on lots on in terms of their average years of schooling. Uh, that is absolutely not the case in rural areas, and in, even in urban China, despite that narrowing of the education gap there's still a big persistence in, in the gender earnings gap more generally. And, you know, the most worrying part of that, as a long literature shows, is that that's 
mainly attributable to gender discrimination as opposed to observable factors. So, for example, if women will have far less education than men, then you would expect, you might still question why that's the case, but you expect them to earn less because education, we hope, <laughs> brings some kind of wage benefits until you get a PhD, then it tips down. <laughs> that's true. But in any case, you know, this is, this is about discrimination, about men being rewarded more even when they're exactly the same as the women in, in a whole bunch of other ways. Uh, and if you trace that through the reform period, there's a whole number of things where you would have, not you would have expected, I'm going to say mainstream um, economists who believe that markets work assume that discrimination would kind of disappear because as you inject market forces into anything, it doesn't make sense in efficiency terms for discrimination to exist. But instead, they've seen it going the opposite direction. You know, you have a big round of state-owned enterprise reforms uh, in the 1990s. Some 20 million people back then were released into the sea, you know, to go off and find their own way uh, in the private sector. Women were by far the largest proportion of that. They're much quicker to be laid off. Uh, we've seen that feed into drops in labour force participation rates. You know, I mean, some might say, and I've heard Chinese women say, and Australian women as well, not many of them, but you know, my husband's earning enough money that now I can afford to stay at home. It's a classic episode on If You Are The One last year that I was watching whilst researching, um, researching for, for this writing this piece. and. The final woman contestant had, there was one man left, you know, the only one who'd left his side on. I assume most of you or some of you are familiar with the show and she gets to go off and live happily ever after with him if she wants to because he's said that she's okay. But she gets to ask him one more question and she says to him, um, you know, do you think if, if, if I go with you and after I've had one child, will you be able to support me while I stay at home and have babies and don't ever have to work again? He looked quite nervous and said, oh, I don't know if my earnings will be enough for that. She, she turned off the light, left alone, like that was her ambition. Um, dropping out of the labour force, you know, has all sorts of things underpinning it, but again, as an economist, it really doesn't make sense from a, from a productivity perspective. Married women are the biggest to suffer in lots of number crunching, showing just that point, and it really does come down to household uh, work. There's another fist-clenching thing. I don't think Chinese women are the only ones that suffered, and I'll put it on the table. With all due respect to my husband, he's bloody awful in the house, and I you know, really have to struggle with that, even though I'm a busy working woman working you know, a higher-paid job than he does in our case. Um, but in any case, you know, I, I just put that in because I think it's important to recognise what aspects of this are global and, and what aren't. Um, political capital... We now have a situation where uh, the uh, Communist Party membership of women has declined. Uh, from There was one in three um, party members in the 1980s were women, now it's one in four. Uh, they have a wage bonus, you know, you, and I'll show you a, a number that, to illustrate that. Um, and just with that disproportionate number of men being party members and connected means there's another, an additional wage bonus that comes with that. So the way that I think about this and a theme, a topic that I'm really just drawn to, I guess, philosophically, is to think about inequality of opportunity as opposed to overall inequality. And the reason is that economists, we can't, we can't unite on whether inequality 
overall, say, in thinking about a distribution of income, and I will use my hands a bit for that, but where you've got, in our case, some 16,000 individuals and they all have a different level of annual income, and you have a level of inequality that's associated with that. And most of you would have heard at least of the Gini coefficient that gives a number like 0.5 and says this, is the dis this explains in one number the distribution across a an outcome. We can't say, re we can say 0.5 is too high, most people would agree on that, but we don't know whether inequality in that outcome is necessarily all bad. You know, some inequality is good, some inequality is bad. And the philosophers uh, feeding into an, a, a growing economics literature have really helped pin this down in ways that might seem obvious to you, I don't know, but what, we're, what I'm interested in is that portion of the inequality that is unjust or unfair. And the way that we think about that is to think about any, any part of inequality that is determined by circumstances that are beyond your control, like your gender, or whether you were born with a rural urban hukou, or whether your father is rich or poor, all happened beyond your control. Those circumstances together determine some part of the inequality, and they have their own associated distribution with that. Whereas the part of inequality that comes from effort, and I'm going to use inverted commas there because it's not that straightforward, but one idea of effort is if you go and pursue a PhD or a master's degree, an MBA, then you put in extra effort. Of course, it turns out that that effort was in turn determined by some of your circumstances, but you should be rewarded for that. It makes sense to most of us that you would be rewarded. So what I want to do is separate out the circumstance-based inequality, and that's how we measure inequality of opportunity, or allows us to ask, is there equality of opportunity? And I really like it from a political perspective. You know, I don't hide my politics very well when I'm talking about inequality. You can probably guess which side of the left-right divide I come on to. But, and if you're on the right, that's fine. But the thing is that I think we can agree um, either way. You know, I tend to see, in, in, a, in a political sense, we see the right declaring that we have great equal opportunity here and so we don't need to do anything about it. And that means all inequality is actually determined by effort. Um, if I can show that that's not true, especially in the Chinese context, right, then I think that matters because we've got a ruling Communist Party talking about everyone having a moderately prosperous level at least and with inequality being, for me, the defining feature of any kind of socialism, even if it's with Chinese characteristics. So we're talking about two types of inequality between that caused by circumstances and that caused by efforts. Uh, and what we can do is group together bunch of people, and we could do it with the people in this room, by identifying our various circumstances, and you could just take two and say whether you're born rural or urban, uh, and, or where you were born in the, in the country, and whether you're male or female, and then classify people into types. And if you looked at the mean income for each of those types, so look at the mean income of all the women who were born in, let's say, let's say in China, born in urban China with... Um, highly educated parents, they become a type and we can look at the mean of that type's income. And what that does, and then, and then we'd look at the distribution across all the different types, and that part of the distribution is, uh, the inequality that stems from that is inequality of opportunity. And I want to look at it as a share of overall inequality of opportunity. And just to give, to, to set it up a little bit, so this has been done for a whole bunch of different countries uh, where, for example, a really high share of inequality of opportunity in overall inequality 
is 20 or 30 percent. Uh, Brazil, Guatemala, India fall into that category, as you'll see China does as well. Come down to Norway, Sweden, the Scandinavian countries, their share of inequality of opportunity coming from just a small number of circumstances, about five or six, I'll show you this full sem, accounts for just five percent of overall inequality. In other words, you have got really good-looking equality of opportunity there. I mean, Australia doesn't fare too badly, still in, you know, close to the 5% range as well. Um, anywhere getting up at the 20% range, you know, you've got a problem. And so you want to think about what equal opportunity <coughs> policies could be used to address that problem. So I use a survey, it's actually back to 2010, so it's a little bit misleading to say this is Xi Jinping's era, but I'm absolutely confident and in fact have seen some of the numbers for 2016 data. It's not getting any better, if anything it's getting worse, but what we do is have, I, I can observe in a beautiful survey data, if you like numbers like I do, 16,000 individuals with positive labour earnings across all provinces, and what I'm going to do is identify very soon some circumstances and efforts that relate to their earnings and then I'm going to measure the inequality of opportunity and I'm going to decompose that measurement to show you that gender is the biggest factor. Um, I'm also going to talk a little bit about effort but not so much uh, unless people are interested in that later on but the effort variables in fact let me just um, cover those cover those off. Uh, I'll come back to the circumstances, but I've given some examples. The sorts of efforts that I'm talking about, and again, every time for me in inverted commas, because some people will say, go off and get high school, any, any level of education, that takes effort on your part, but it's effort that's determined by your circumstances. Your own occupation is an effort that you put in to, for example, migrate. Uh, migration is also there. You choose to, to migrate. I've got marriage in there and it's actually one of the in, most interesting points for me that's coming out of my latest research just showing how bad marriage is for women or more, more um, accurately how marriage works in men's favour and I'll show you those numbers. And then choosing to become a Communist Party member you know, it's not, you, you've got to fill out a form at least, surely. Um, I have never done it. I don't know if anyone knows how much effort it takes but they're, they're the sorts of efforts that I'm talking about as opposed to that list of circumstances. I think I've listed them all or mentioned them all so I won't read them out. But there's the sort of type that I'm talking about, a rural 26 to 30 year old female. You couldn't choose when you were born and so an age or a birth cohort helps me kind of isolate um, different points in a single cross-section of data. So there's a rural 26 year old female from the West with illiterate fathers who work in agriculture. It's fair to say that that's a pretty unlucky type in the data. And there's actually 108 of those types. And again, I'm just using my hands for those of you who want to ignore this page, and I'm almost tempted to skip over it. Um, and I, in fact, I will do if you say you don't. No, I've got to spend three minutes on it. Um, so see how you go with it. But if you don't like the look of that, that's what I'm doing, using those circumstances to predict the mean income of each of 108 types and think about that inequality of that, that sort of measure of inequality of opportunity as a, as a share of the overall inequality measure. They're just two numbers. A genie, I can't use a genie, but something like it. The genie overall of 0.55, um, and then you might have a genie in this compressed sample that is 0.2, and then I'm getting at a, my 
inequality of opportunity share or the IOR. So just I'm just going to assume that a couple of people won't mind this and, and sit with it. And we've got an, so we've got an outcome Y of labour income of, of each individual, and I can it has a distribution across these 16,000 interviews uh, individuals, and then a scalar measure inequality, and I've got that up there as I in brackets Y that that gives me a number an inequality measure. As I hope I've already alluded to at least, I assume that labour income, and we take logs to make the distribution kind of look a bit neater, um, but we, so that's a log of that income is determined by a bunch of things, a bunch of circumstances, C, and a bunch of efforts. But I also acknowledge in the second equation that efforts, E, are determined in turn by circumstances. And I could and do sometimes work separately with those two things, but what this inequality of opportunity literature does is substitutes two into one, renames the variables, and again, if you don't like that, don't worry, but you end up with a bottom line there that says the log of income is basically determined by circumstances, which are also affected and relate to efforts, but we've gotten efforts out of that bottom line equation. And that's the regression that I use to basically repress all of the all of the inequality within a, a type, as I mentioned before, and only think about inequality across types, that's what inequality of opportunity is. And I can have an absolute measure or a relative measure, which is the share of overall inequality. Now, you really didn't need to know that um, or understand that to enjoy, I hope, just a couple of numbers, the way that I think about things. So let's have a look at some preliminary stats. and I. I hope you can all see that um, well enough. Uh, I've, I've colour-coded things just so that, they, so that they stand out. But let's just take, for example, first of all, we can see for, in terms of the average labour income of individuals, there's 19,000-odd UN for the whole sample, with a big difference between females and males. And that number there, 0.64, is the ratio of females' income to males' income. So if, on average, women earn 64% of what men earn. Now that number's much more stark at certain parts of the distribution, but all of these numbers, you know, to people who like numbers, they make pretty good sense, that average incomes go up as fathers' education levels go up, uh, as fathers' occupation levels go up, from agriculture to low-skilled, non-agriculture to high-skilled, your individual earnings go up. We just take a look at the gap here for females and males who have illiterate fathers. Females that in that category, it's not a type, it's just because I haven't controlled for everything else yet, but they earn 53% of what men do in that group of people who, who have illiterate fathers. Much better at the top end, you know, much better. It's still a 64%, only 64%. It's a pretty big gap in this raw data, but it's narrowed when you're looking at the difference between females and males whose fathers have high, you know, work in high-skilled, non-agricultural jobs. Remember, something that you couldn't choose. But basically, the key point there is that that divide exists throughout the socioeconomic groupings that I've got in the data. If anyone wants to stop me at any point and ask, uh, I've got about four sets of these numerical slides, and then I'll make some concluding points. And again, it's because the numbers enthuse me and give me, I think, the credibility to make the other points that I do. So just a, a couple of points on efforts. Remember, we can look at one's own education as an effort and see, for example, that uh, the point I made about the gap narrowing 
for men and women who have senior high school education and above. Uh, this is their own, not their father's education. That gap's getting really quite, you know, not too bad at all at, at 80%, 79%. Um, but just take a look at these numbers on, on marriage. Somehow, males who are married, because by choice, uh, and not, you know, there's a lot of them that get taken out of the sample, the most likely men not to be married are the poorest rural men who therefore drop out and so married men have this high level of income there compared with women down there uh, there really is a marriage bonus that becomes even stronger in the next couple of um, slides that I show you so again panic not I love some of these numbers but this is the most important one what I've got here is a regression and I just want you to focus here this is the regression in that first column that comes from equation three so it includes only the circumstance variables that I listed there as the determinants of income. And let's just have a look at some of these numbers. So those raw stats don't take everything else into account, and that's what's beautiful about a regression. It does. It controls for all of the other variables and allows me to conclude there. You, I can't unfortunately call that a 54% because I had logs on the left-hand side, but what I can say is that that number translates pretty simply and says that males on average earn 75% more income than women after all these other variables are controlled for. Uh, I can also see here that uh, what happens when I add these other effort variables in is, for example, that male coefficient drops, and it drops because it's correlated with a lot of these other variables. Uh, but the point still is, whether I include efforts or not, the male coefficient is, is the biggest. Uh, I'm going to have to decompose it to show that, to make that a stronger point, but it is more important than any other variable in there. And again, just to show you how I think these numbers are pretty straightforward to interpret, I've got here fathers of primary school, junior high and above, and the excluded dummy that we have to leave out to estimate this is illiterate. And what that number then means, that 0.34 there, is that compared with illiterate, compared with individuals who have illiterate fathers, people who have fathers with junior high and above earn 0.34 log points more, or about 50% more than those uh, who, who have illiterate fathers. So this really sort of solidifies um, some of the key, the key points that come out of, out of trying to understand what causes inequality in China. A couple of other numbers that, you know, a little bit of bright news here. Again, there are biases in these coefficients for those of you who are good on regressions and we're not trying to say it's causal, it's not get a sex change and you'll therefore earn more because it was the, the fact of being a man means you will earn more. How we interpret these numbers is to say looking at a subsample of females only compared with men only, females on average are rewarded more for getting out and working in non-agricultural jobs than men, 0.79 log points compared with 0.72. For getting out and getting senior high school education and above, women are actually getting higher returns for making that choice. The problem is that it, tur it turns out is that it's harder for them to make that choice uh, for a whole bunch of reasons alluded to in the first part of the talk. Um, 
and, and available in a bulk of evidence from a whole bunch of different disciplines. But there's another pretty important number. Again, the stars make these numbers really matter. When there's no stars, the number's not significant. This basically tells you that for women, there is no bonus associated, no wage bonus associated with being married. Whereas for men, there's a pretty decent bonus, something like, and again, that came out of the raw data, but this kind of solidifies that. We do that for each individual regression, for each individual age cohort to get to the inequality numbers that I want to show you. I've only got two more sets of numbers for you to, um, I hope, bear with me through. But across each cohort, the main point here is to see that uh, the benefit, I call it, the bonus of being male exists at every age. We can't take these numbers, this is just a single year of data, so I can't take these numbers and try and understand whether gender discrimination is getting better or worse over time. You know, I can see that, where's the, what, what's that number there, that the, well actually the women in the 51 to 55 age bracket suffer the worst penalty, you could say. I mean, they also, you know, have earlier retirement ages, so a lot of them have dropped off out of the labour force by then. I can't compare that with women at these different ages, but I can say there is a big gender gap and it exists for all ages in China with some important differences that come out in these other numbers. Uh, and for example, if we look at the 45 to 50 year olds and the 51 to 55 year olds, there are some coefficients that are quite a bit lower. Uh, for example, in having a father in a high-skilled non-agricultural job the rewards, in a way, are higher for younger cohorts because these guys suffered the Cultural Revolution, uh, were sent down, there was an equalising of, of educational opportunities and also of the jobs that followed on from that. Uh, and so they show up in the numbers, you know, which I always like when I'm interested in Chinese history and understanding how it all really works and the numbers then remind me uh, that these are stories that, you know, actually map onto to the reality of how many other people like to think about these things. So, what are the results? And, and again, this is what led me to depressingly choosing to write about gender inequality in China, was to show, remember, cast your mind back, if you didn't like the equations, I was going to give you a share of inequality of opportunity determined by those six circumstances um, and that share for China comes out at about 25% across the national sample and it's high uh, across the entire, uh, for, for all of those different age cohorts. Age cohorts. Um, the Gini coefficient, a number that most people are familiar with, you really start to worry when that's over about 0.3 in a national context. It is a very, very high Gini coefficient. I haven't used that, I've used something else, but the point is inequality of opportunity in China is alarmingly high in an international context, uh, and I think for a communist party, uh, with all due respect, that it's an utter disgrace. Um, <laughs> What I then do is decompose the share of um, where, where, where the primary contributors are, and again, I gave you the punchline before I took you on that journey, and gender across the nationwide sample accounts for 28% of that, of just those six circumstances, you know, of, of gender, of, of inequality in China. So I can't say from these numbers that gender is the single biggest determinant of income inequality and this might sound pedantic and semantic, but it's important. You know, your own education 
level is obviously an important determinant of wages, and I haven't included that in how I've done this breakdown. I'm just looking at the circumstances that I know I can say are beyond the control of the individual that they can't change. It's the share of inequality that we can all stand up and say this shouldn't exist, and gender is absolutely the number one cause. I mean, there are other factors, as you would expect. You know, this uh, uh, in China, in the last 10 years, the importance of socioeconomic status has increased. Daddy is the key is a, is a popular expression epitomising this idea that, it, you know, I grew up being told it by my dad. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Um, and that, you know, is borne out in these numbers as well. Turns out the, the rural or not adds contributes a fairly small share, which surprises me. Uh, and again, there are all sorts of biases on the coefficients where we can't take these numbers, you know, I, I, I can't lay my life on the line for them, but the striking gender figures that just kept coming out at me, as I said, in a paper that wasn't originally about gender, it was about income inequality and became about gender. So I think I'm on good time. I was given 40 minutes and I've got 40, I'm 44 in and this is my last slide. Uh, and I hope that I've made these, these points clear in a way that um, appealed to some of you. <laughs> Inequality of opportunity in China's labour income, it's among the highest in the world and gender is the most important circumstance. That's my starting point. Now there are some efforts that generate higher returns for women and we saw that just in the, in the numbers. I've been looking further at this question of discrimination uh, and seeing that these are actually work in women's favour, even when you look in more detail, and particularly in the rural sample, if you can get women off the farm, if you can get them, you know, proceeding beyond junior high, then there are wage returns that, that come with that. Um, but it's the marriage numbers, and I did show you in the regressions, you know, they're, they're, this is, leads me into this thinking about what kind of efforts might you put in, and I'm not going to conclude by saying um, Chinese women shouldn't, shouldn't get married. Um, there are choices that we all make. Uh, it turns out in this data that by choosing to get married, women receive no bonus and men receive a significant one. You know, and I think a lot about that. If they choose not to work, if they choose... If a woman chooses to only work part-time, if they choose to take time off to have babies, if they choose to be the house you know, provider, um, is that a problem? Uh, is that a problem? I'm going to leave that as an open question and I'd love to hear the thoughts of everyone in the room. But you know, for me, I think it's definitely not as simple as that. They've made their choice. Let's just leave it at that. Um, coming back to how I kick-started this and what I talk about, you know, very lightly in the book, and some people in the room might know more about it than I do, but we've got a top-down campaign uh, beginning absolutely with Xi Jinping, talking up traditional family values, and a big part of that seems to be, and it's or not seems to be, it's directly out of the speeches that he's given, that he thinks the women should be staying at home and looking after the elderly, and they've got an ageing problem, we can talk about that too. You know, they've got. Um, he thinks they've got a, a population problem that they need more babies. I disagree with him on that. But um, you know, trying to get the women to stay home and do that contradicts so many of his other objectives. That you know, 
I find that problematic. Um, but on top of that, the discrimination that we see in the workforce, uh, that I hear about, you know, in day-to-day -day life, um, the fact that the, the, ha the distribution of household chores, which we could actually observe in this data, it's a women's social survey um, that, we, that we use and there's numbers on housework. 70% of married women report the reason for not working at all is because of household work. You know, almost no men report that number. It's higher in rural China, 78%. I mean, we could do a survey. <laughs> oh no, we're all working so we can't do it in here. But you know, I, again, this is one of those more universal points. Uh, it keeps coming up all the time. The United Nations has released a report in the last couple of years saying that, that it's stopped looking at what's happening in the workforce until we look at what's happening at home. We're never going to uh, solve the problem. Uh, how would you solve the problem? <coughs> Equal opportunity jobs <laughs> present themselves out of what I find a very appealing literature on inequality of opportunity that's about, you know, making sure that women do have equal rights across a whole range of dimensions. Um, but I do close by saying that I actually think the battle begins at home. Uh, and I gave this seminar, a related one, to a bunch of economists at the Academy of Social Sciences many years ago. And the, a, a man came up to me afterwards and he said, but my wife just so much better at ironing than I am. <laughs> that was one of my fist-clenching moments. <laughs> this is a global movement. Um, I hope the men in the room have appreciated it as much as, as the women as well. Um, I, I guess I could be described as a staunch feminist, but I've got a few numbers to back me up. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Rick. All right. As a woman, I feel different. I feel more different. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, thank you. Uh, but it's very refreshing. Uh, first, my, my question firstly is about um, from the structural global level. Uh, looking at it in the index, it has been increasing from I started teaching at point. The global gaining. Yeah, the, and um, the question will be U.S. shares a similar level of gaining. So is it possible that um, this is not just China, it's the U.S. and others as well, this is a structural problem. Yep. Um, secondly, from the micro level, uh, looking at the Chinese case, um, you said that um, women will have a choice in, um, in terms of uh, choosing education and job decision, uh, job opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, while you're also talking about the Chinese leaders' use of Confucius, uh, cultural traditions to constrain women at the same time. So the norms and traditions cannot be seen from the data. No, no, no. So that's something else that norms uh, perspective on uh, constraint on the Chinese women will be more uh, leading to the inequality. Yep. Uh, thirdly, you oh, third question. I'm glad I got a pen. You point out the cohort differences. The cultural revolution yep. is there. That's the father's generation. So after the 1990s, when uh, the um, Deng Xiaoping's first generation of students going abroad mm -hmm. returned, they will, brought, they will be bringing with them a lot of new ideas and uh, new norms from yep. uh, around the world. Is that change showing? I, I can't see very clearly the data, but it seems that there is a downturn and then up there. Uh, okay, so first of all, Great question on the on the American-China comparison. America 
has a terrible problem with inequality. China has a bad problem with inequality. I haven't done this analysis and I haven't seen it done for the inequality of opportunity part of that. And I bet America's is high too, um, certainly higher than, say, the Scandinavian countries. But remember that the real focus here is I, I can't walk away and say China's inequality is worse than America's or not. I'd have to know how bad America's inequality of opportunity was um, because those other two numbers are, are just not comparable. And you then need to think about what caused inequality of opportunity in the US. I don't think the gender numbers would be anywhere near as high. Um, you know, we wouldn't classify them as urban rule. I don't know you'd have regional divisions that, you know, the Detroit, the... the the, the states that have been hit by the chi by China's rise the most, you'd see those states suffering. So the determinants would be different, um, but you can't quite compare compare the two. You, I absolutely don't have the norms in the data, and it, I'm just going to you know a regression basically at the bottom there. You have an R squared number that tells you how how much of income inequality you've explained with your variables, and that number there at 25 percent you might say that's oh, pretty low. It's actually not bad for a, such a big sample that I can explain 25% of the inequality with just those six variables uh, is, is, is quite a lot. But it means that there's 75% of stuff that I haven't explained that for the people who like regressions in the room, you know, comes out in that error term. And so in that error term is built in all of the things that you, you then want to say aren't in the data. Yes, the norms... Uh, the social pressure on women to make certain certain choices. I mean, I gave this seminar in Melbourne and a woman wrote to me and said, oh, my mother's, my parents are pressuring me to get married. They didn't want me to do my PhD. I really want to stay here and do that. You know, I don't know how to cope with that. That's all in the error term. You know, and that's when it gets interesting. I don't need to end on that page at all. I love to step outside and say, this is what I can explain with the numbers. Now let's go and talk about the interesting stuff that you can't, and all of those pressures uh, are embedded in that, so I'm not claiming to explain everything. I thought I'd remember your third question. I think that was the same. The cohorts. Oh, the different cohorts. So again, when you're looking at cohorts, <coughs> yeah, you can try and make some interpretations, but you just have to be really clear that they're at one point in time, 2010, measuring these differences. So, for example, you would expect with education or with, with an experience that there would be different coefficients on an older generation, uh, for example, on... Well, actually, no, not on these circumstances, or on marriage. Uh, oh, no, so these are the circumstance-only ones. They shouldn't really... You know, I can't think why women in this age group in urban China would necessarily be you know, receiving that kind of um, wage bonus. But you can't compare and say, let's construct a story across time, because this is just one point in time. So what you really need to do for that is have data from 1990, uh, 2000 and 2010. And in fact, the woman who supplies this data from, the, from CAS has that data, but we haven't had a chance to do it over time yet. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. Interested in your what you put up there, the education. You, the highest level is high school and above. What about uh, tertiary or college education? I thought that would be interesting. Oh, so it's and, great. And, and also yeah. the for, oh, and also the state-owned and non-state-owned. Yep. 
I thought that that would be a very interesting. I don't know whether because you don't have the data, you see, because that that to me the education and the, the and the sector, you know, would be very interesting. Yeah, great question. So yeah, because as we know, and also you know, SOEs whereabouts they are, because in the declining regions. Yep. Yeah, so, the the way that I've come in at this is yeah. again thinking about the circumstances that yeah. are beyond your control, and so that means the your father's education is one of those circumstances, but your own education yeah. isn't. And the more refined, the, the sort of more refined that we break those education structures down to be, so we we do actually hear you know talk about fathers with being illiterate, primary and junior high, but when we look at the own education, yeah, that's, right. yeah th that, that's an effort. If I break that down into more detail, we definitely learn more yeah. uh, about that and my R squared, for example, yeah. would go up. Um, but it's not my purpose here to be trying to explain that. I mean, I have done that. And you see, for example, that when you... I mean, we only ever go to senior high and above. There aren't enough... Even in urban China, if you look at the 51 to 55-year-old bracket, there are so few people with tertiary education that you, you can't work with those numbers, they become too small, even with a 16,000 strong sample. But if you break it down into those different levels of detail, um, for example, you see that in, in urban China, for senior high and above, your own level of education, you, there's no difference between men and women. Whereas in rural China, Actually, there are quite important differences that don't all work in women's favour, like for junior high level or for primary level. But this data doesn't let us go up to that college and above. I guess I was thinking because, like, 2010, yep. it's about just one decade after China entered the WTO. Yes. In a sense that you know the the if you like the the um, the really you know. The, Participation in a globalized economy, yes. in a sense, is I would say it's matured, but it hasn't gone as far as let's say, you know, yep. uh, much later. So anyway, I thought it'd be interesting to look at the you know, longer, you know, put another snapshot, maybe two two or one, you know. but but that'll be later. And two thousand and twenty yeah. will be yeah. on state ownership. Um, again, there there is a literature that will look at gender discrimination in the different sectors. In fact, we use we use one of these methods to, so is it is it worse in the state-owned sector versus the collectively owned sector or the private sector? And of course, they, those sectors do determine your wages as well, but it's not kind of related to this it's sector. Just one last thing. You talk about Communist Party membership. Yeah. Until recently, they had big trouble in retaining members mm -hmm. because it not, does not provide the same sort of return as it did before. And it taught a lot of well-to-do sort of entrepreneurs and workers the, the membership labs, they could be voted. I, I know friends of mine. I th oh, and so I'm just wondering, yeah. perhaps maybe more to do with the father's party membership, you know, than their personal membership. That, I, mean, I don't know, yeah. I'm just speculating because just, I know that they, you, know, you read some of the stuff that they're, they're troubled, the membership, you know, it's actually of, of the right kind, so to speak, you know. Uh, now it's different, of course, you know, because of the Xi Jinping and so on. But at one time, there was this, this massive people were sort of letting the memberships uh, decline. Yep. And lots who were sort of uh, communist youth, me youth members never bothered because, you know, they don't see the rates of return there. 
That's why I asked you the question about yeah, yeah. non-state sector, because that one, you know, and now I can't say because it's, so I'm just interested. You yeah, know, yeah. Really, it's it's uh, it, it's it the uh, it is a, a proxy of of or whatever. <laughs> or does it matter? If it, if I, I know it does in in the state sector. It does. You know, I mean, if you if you're not party member, forget about being president of university or something like that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Especially prestigious. But I'm just wondering in the uh, economy as a whole. Uh, you know, I, mean, I, I don't know, I don't, I'm open-minded, I'm just wondering. Yeah. What, what is Look, I don't know what the age distribution looks like, and it's not, it's not my area. It's, you know, in, again, in this case, you learn and read that party membership has been shown to be an important determinant, determinant of wages, and so I come at it, you know, thinking that it's important to include in there. It's not really my area. Oh, I don't know. If, I mean, anecdotally, when you hear a number of people, you know, I bet the distribution of party membership has changed over time, and maybe the the share of the youth number is declining. And yet, I think I the membership is somehow correlated, right, with senior position in SOEs and obviously government. Uh, you know, to some extent, not as much as before, right? But I'm not sure it plays a big role. I mean, the, 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 in the non-state sector, and even in the, the foreign invested sector, where we know the foreign invested sector, yep. people get higher pay, you know. So, I mean, I'm open-minded because I'm just wondering, mm. you know, I've been on, on my mind, mm. you know. Of course, there are a lot of studies of the importance of party membership, but depending which, uh, which, uh, which unit you work mm. but. You know, might not be. So I don't know. Might I don't know. It's a and question that is worth asking. Uh, and it will be very interesting to yeah. track how it's changing. I mean, just you know, anecdotally from my own experience in the classroom teaching, I teach the Chinese economy, and I don't remember in I can say in decades past, I don't remember Chinese students announcing to me that they were party members. Whereas in the last couple of years, every year I'll have it. You know, only one or two, but will say to me. I can't write anything critical of the Chinese government uh, because I'm a party member. So I thought a lot of recruitment happened at, at the university level, and I wouldn't high be school. surprised if or high school, high and that that pressure is but rising. Not because your data yeah, but not so. Yes, so not not showing up in here, but yeah, data. yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, we we leave. Fred. Thanks very much for your presentation. Some of my points are going to resonate with what has been. Colleagues have said probably with a different kind of words. Like my first comment is about you said that gender is the most circumstance thing in equality, and, and you know the figures are impressive, together, but how far or how different is it from other countries? You know, like if you look at the demonstrations at yeah. 8th of March in Europe, like, yeah. and you talk to the French people, and they will tell you that for the same sort of job, uh, these things will appear like the same sort of job, the same <laughs> education. Like in fact, yeah. there is all these things. Sorry. In, in economics or experimental, like, you know, throw in the line CVs and just because yep. you are a, when, so, you are, when you are a guy, you're getting more money, so that's that's wrong. So in that case, I would like to know that. The second part would we'll, we'll talk to the last comment, which is mentioned, and, and, and I I sympathize a lot of you because I've tried to work with sometimes with with surveys, and it's kind of complicated sometimes with with the numbers. But uh, and you were very cautious stating that uh, it was, you know, that. There may be other other things. So I would like you to speculate because yeah, sure, like 25%. I wish sometimes I got it. <laughs> My own stuff. But uh, 
You know, I was wondering whether in your, in your survey, the way we've seen from 2010, you could look for other, uh, you know, other variables that would try to, to reduce either the error yeah. of term or, you know, kind of, and, and that, that the last suggestion I think would be, would be, would be, would be great. And finally, two, two things. You said that you were not relying on GDN. Uh, I mean, you can't decompose the genie in the way between the between and within type things. You have to use mean log deviation or, or another one of the G group. Okay. And my final point would be the workstorm Branko Milanovic at uh, New York probably like, I would like to know more or less how those would relate because if I get it right, he works more at the country level, comparing countries within countries, and you're looking more at the people, which yep. you know, has also very interesting stories. But you know, because he's played a lot issue with the elephant and China happens to be benefiting, you know, it's a, sometimes it's like, yeah, sure, we have a problem there of, of ecological fallacy, but, but it seems to me that you know, maybe finding some interesting tensions in, in and maybe it's just more for future research than, <laughs> than for now, right? It's just an idea to find. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, so the cross-country comparisons relating to your first and, and third questions and how different it is for China. There's not that many. I'm coming from the literature on inequality of opportunity. I have to keep stressing it is it's a subset of the overall inequality literature. So I can answer sort of all the questions together. I didn't set out to get a low um, R squared there. What I set out to do was to use comparable set of very a small set of circumstances. Although there's not too many more that you can come up with in China's context. I don't know if you can think of any, but things that you can't control that were predetermined that you include in this. I'm, I'm following an international literature in having that fairly small set. Gender's normal, often left out because people say, oh, but women, don't, you know, they don't work full time or they, they opt out of the workforce for various reasons, uh, so they focus on male-only samples. There's about four or five papers that have looked at gender. You know, I've got a number here from that set of about, what was it, 25, 30% of, of those circumstances. Uh, in Australia's case, I think the number was 0.5%. Uh, and in, uh, in Sweden, uh, interestingly, it was a, a higher percentage, something like 8 to 10% of, of that overall inequality coming from gender. But that's because they have no other fa factors that are holding them down. So there are some interesting cross-country comparisons. I'm going to posit that it wouldn't be higher anywhere, almost. And, which is not to say that other countries don't have a gender problem. Um, I can keep on adding more variables and bringing, in, bringing that R squared up if I want to explain overall inequality in China, but that's not what I was trying to do in this, in this research. I've got three questions and about seven minutes, so shall we quote them and then... Yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, Susan. on the gender inequality index from what the UNDP yep. has been so sharply declining. Yeah. And while its GDP overall has gone up so much. So I mean it's yeah. kind of a anti poverty rising yeah, it for women story, which is counterintuitive to most other countries in Sample. So I think this is extremely important work. So, you know, in other Southeast Asian countries where they said poverty is being alleviated, the gender equality index is not young. Which I don't know. Yeah, so, no, the global forum. Yeah, they've dropped 10, 15 places in yeah. 10 years or more. Well, I've got the numbers in there. Well, you know, China's now very powerful nation. Might export some of these issues in Southeast Asia, but also through a 
by the time you break it down there's there's really not that much variation and I think we have used it in the past and it doesn't really do very much anyway it might even be insignificant although you of course always expect there is a, a bonus associated with being hand but it's not a big enough part of the story so it's kind of dropped out in this version for some reason but yeah absolutely yeah no it's a good point it, and I suppose the last thing when I was last in China Later retirement, or yes, so that they will be they will be expected to look after their parents whilst they were having to work. Ah. So they, especially with the two-child policy thing, there's not enough childcare. Yep. So they were very uh, exercised about that. So I think you might see worse female labour participation as the pension age increases. Well, and and that's where the contradictions come in. You get the yeah. sense that Xi Jinping thinks it's not a bad idea. And if you if there's a chicken and eggs, if you don't have a well-established pension system. And you do need someone to stay home from it and let, you know, without being too gender biased, women are probably going to do a better job of looking after their ageing parents on average. But at the same time, I think uh, one of the things I noticed from the G20 process there, a lot of women involved in the informal economy who are not necessarily taking salaries, so if you're salary dependent in yep. the population, yes. might not give you the full picture of how active women are in the economy. It was the impression... We posted this and had someone tweet and say, "What about all the all the Chinese female billionaires?" It's like, well, yeah, they're probably out there, but we've got 573 million of them. You know, it's a fifth of the world's women coming yeah, back to your saying, first point. This wasn't the rich people; these people involved in the market sort of economy, and, um, you know, doing small internet things at home, still heavily gendered. Yeah. Yeah. But does it doesn't show up on all No, no. Visual? And I don't know whether it makes it better or worse until you can see a really close breakdown. I mean, that's the other thing. You get... Yeah. Don't know what... And so, therefore, don't want to have more babies. If you want to look to the number one explaining, you know, explanation for why the two-child policy is not taking effect, I think, well, whether the men have got a part in it as well, but the women are saying, I can't, I don't have time for this. There's no way I've got time to have another baby. I might lose my job as a result, and in any case, I've got too many other things to do. Time is, you know, and again, not all of that is China-specific. Yeah. Some part of it is. But all, I think the one-child policy is very child-specific, and I think there was a lot of yeah. time was predicting that the scarcity of lives would make them more important resource, more powerful. I hasn't turned out to be No. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, markets don't deliver um, long-run equilibrium, and, you know, I'm, I'm that kind of economist, and I believe that. But they, they totally did. The, the, they won't have a gender imbalance. We don't need to worry about sex-selective abortion because the market will fix it up. Gary Becker, the father of sort of the economics of marriage and the family, 
who said that. Um, disgraceful. <laughs> okay, so more quickly, Sue and then Colleen. The population. You said something uh, that made me think. It's what you're saying that the, the decrease in the population is not as big an issue. Oh, you said, I said that I disagree body. with Xi Jinping on this. Look, it's not so, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's about population. Yeah. No, I, well, I, do you mean I'm, what I said is? I mean, Xi Jinping and the, the government's line is that China needs to have more babies. Yes. And, yeah. you know, in control, I give the easiest version of that, yeah. you know, 10 years of modelling work, but it comes from basically being a population pessimist. You know, I don't want to associate with Malthus necessarily, but I'm a neo-Malthusian. I think okay. when you've got lots and lots and lots of people yeah. and you keep on adding more people, mm -hmm. the it's, it's one of the only laws we've got in economics is diminishing marginal productivity. You know, the average product or the, the, the productivity of the next person is less than the average of the people before them. So adding more people, each next person comes at a cost. The flip side of that is reducing the population brings per capita income gains, it brings productivity gains. Tsai Fung, the most famous um, population economist in, in China, spent, you know, by two, was has celebrated and been celebrated for describing how the one-child policy, bringing fertility rates down, drove up the productivity of workers in China and that it can explain up to a quarter or a third of China's per capita income growth. I believe that. Um, I also know that when you have lots of babies, you know, they're worried about age dependency. I've got a population here across age. And you've got a whole bunch of workers and you've got the ageing population and it's growing. But how does having more babies, they're not very productive either. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have got 20-year-olds. I'm not finding them very productive. You know, so they're dependent as well. So you don't solve an ageing problem, I don't think, by having more babies. You solve an ageing problem by making women and other people in the workforce more productive uh, and, for example, extending the retirement age. Okay. I mean, I don't want to work till I'm 70, but um, that's what we're thinking okay. here. There are better solutions. Okay, and, now. Yeah. <laughs> So that's another... <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, the, uh, yeah, so I think there's some 
Americans or Western thinking. Yes. I think very quickly, I mean, from DC at the moment, but it is. Uh, yeah, digital area, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to uh, re-raise the question of comparisons with other countries. Mm -hmm. We had quite a lot about comparisons with the US and, and uh, France was mentioned. And you said that um, China was down there, should we say, along with countries like yeah. India. And I think you mentioned a couple of uh, others. Brazil, Guatemala, Brazil, yeah, yeah. Latin America. Uh, and Guatemala was the yeah. third one, yeah. Um, I just wanted to, because it seems to me that... Um, you can compare with the West, and, and that is rational. Um, the, the kind of countries that, uh, that we normally would compare China with, I think um, places like, uh, well, India seems to me a very interesting example. Yep. And um, maybe the Philippines, Vietnam, and so on. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could expand a bit more on that. I, I'd, I'd be very interested to know um, if you have any comments on comparing China with, say, India, which is, I think, is a very, very interesting comparison, or the others, Vietnam seems interesting to me, or some of the Muslim yeah. so I haven't majority seen, countries. I haven't seen anything on Vietnam, and I don't know enough about it to start doing any kind of comparisons. I mean, I haven't personally done work on India, but the paper that is, is really very similar to the the data that we use and the circumstances that we use here. There was one done for rural India and it shows that inequality of opportunity there accounts for 20, 21% of rural India's inequality, uh, overall inequality. If you add to that, if you did that at the national level where the urban-rural divide in India is so great, I think that number would go up even higher and India would perform worse than China. Now, on gender, specifically, again, I, I can't comment on where that would come in. I mean, the, that particular analysis, I think, was male only anyway. But, yes, yeah, so to really do careful comparisons, you need to work with comparable data sets and comparable circumstances, so it's all only rough. Um, and I don't necessarily... I, I, all I can say is China's in a... In a in with a bunch of countries where, the, you know, where there's definitely room for improvement. I mean, you could see the numbers, say, in the Australian context. I started by saying there's a left-right divide of, you know, for me, the right declares we have it, and the left is not so quick to do that. If the numbers in our overall inequality in Australia come down to only 2% or something, you might say, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty well off. It doesn't mean there's nothing left to do. Make it more refined, look at just disabilities, look at all of those different things, and more refined analysis would give you insight into the problems that we know exist <laughs> in reality. But yeah, can't really compare across countries in a really crystal clear way. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks, Jane. Thank you very much.